What has been termed as racist from the past is, I, I think, comes from a point of a person being able to influence another person's life. So the majority of black people, they come from a scenario whereby they do not have resources in most cases. So for you to influence, you have to have resources. You have to be able to control. So you cannot just be racist by shouting at people. That's not racist enough. But if you have influence, you can sort of alter the direction in which a person's life goes. So, and that's the kind of racism that we've been experiencing. Yeah, so black people can be racist, but in many cases, those black people who have resources, I don't think they have been that bad compared to some white people I've come across. Because if you have resources, then you can decide what a person does and what they don't do. Yeah, and in most cases, black people have been made to do things they don't want to do. That's why they've come up to the point of saying, ah, white people are racist. You see what I mean? Yeah. Is it possible for black people to be racist? Yes. Very possible. I think it's, yeah, it's very possible. Should I elaborate? Uh, yeah, we'd, yeah, we'd love you to. I feel, uh, like, because we've gone through different, in different areas, there's been different things done to us, so even if right now I might be like, okay, I don't mind, you know, being in the same class as a white person, but there is someone who maybe doesn't have the funds to come here that will be racist to someone who can, and use their background as uh, a validation as to why they're here but you know being of different backgrounds sometimes you do find there are black people that were able to have funds to come here so it's a bit of a difficult issue but it, it's possible it's possible yeah i mean anybody can be racist it doesn't you know it doesn't just have to be certain certain race. anybody can be it's just it's discrimination it doesn't it can go either way um, yeah, I think everyone can be racist. Um, I, I think the reason why um, most people think that black people cannot be racist is because um, of where we're coming from as South Africa, um, like before 1994. Because like before then, I think mostly white people were racist. And then after that, when we were well, considered all equal, um, then I think, yeah, anyone can be racist, yeah. I've been struggling with this for quite a while. <laughs> um, at first I used to think yes, but now I kind of think no. Because I feel like it's like a counter-attack. I feel like if we were at the top, or if we were ever like... Then we would, there would be grounds for us to be racist. But we don't have that sort of power. I think racism works where you, you it, it can actually affect you. Whether it's systematic or, you know, so I don't think we can be systematically racist because you don't have the systems in the first place. Or socially not really either. Do you agree? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think that's a very philosophical question. <laughs> but that one, it's a, it's a, I think it's a deep one, you know. I used to do philosophy before, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's too philosophical. But we used to argue about it and we never really got to a conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think this question is all about the power dynamic, really. And coming from this standpoint, we were saying black people have been subjugated for a very long time. It's difficult to imagine a black person being racist. But also... Depending on how we define racism, I think racism is just uh, one group uh, taking advantage of another type of group. So I think if black people take advantage of all the, I think if black people take hold of all the sources of power and then they start to use that influence to 
take advantage of white people, then it can actually be classified as racism. But if you say, well, you know, we are doing it because it's kind of retribution for what we used to, then, but I think it depends. You, you can be racist if you're black. Right, so today's topic is, can black people be racist? Super provocative. Rather, <laughs> yes. Ultimately, the reason that we have decided to go with a super provocative question is because there seems to be this notion that black people can't be racist because they lack a certain power. Right. And white people have the kind of power that is necessary in order to be racist. Right. So the idea is that in order to be racist, a necessary condition is that you must be in a position of power. Black people aren't in a position of power, and so they can't be racist. Right. This is the argument, right? Yeah. And we are going to be looking at this today. Yeah, we'll be criticizing the argument. Exactly. But I think before we get into that discussion, is there something that you know you can think of in your life that plays out this idea of of power and racism. Have you ever been accused of of racism or sexism or something like that um, on right. the basis of your gender and your and your race? So um I, I've been on kind of both sides of, of this issue. So I I used to lecture at Wits University and um I had this class of very outspoken um, second-year students. I was teaching social and political philosophy, and my class president was um, a black guy, and he stood up. It was about halfway through the semester. It was actually about three-quarters of the way through the semester, which meant he was really, like, entrenched in the class. And he stood up, and he, he suggested uh, a genocide against white people, that white people should be removed, uh, eliminated from South Africa, driven out. I think it was the whole of Africa, but but we'll focus on South Africa. He he felt that white people should be eliminated, um, killed, and removed from South Africa, and that was the solution to the power um, inequalities in in our country. And I remember thinking, I remember I remember listening to this and thinking, well, you know, well, in any other context, if you were to replace those terms, if you repla- replaced white with Jewish or white with black or mm. white with woman or white with gay, it would not be taken well. But the class no. sat there. I was just going to ask what the reaction was, because I'm a bit speechless. I remember looking around the class um, and looking at the white students and the black students. And the black students, some of them looked down, quite a bit ashamed. Others were nodding. The white students all looked down as well. And it didn't seem... it. Nobody, Nobody looked angry. Nobody looked... Um, outraged. Nobody looked like they had a sense that this was disgusting behavior and this was racism. And I wondered why. And I think the reason is exactly this power argument. The idea that Mm. he is part of a a group that's been persecuted in the past, that's been oppressed. Mm. And so he can make these comments because they're not racist in that context. So I handled it in a way that tried to like honor that, but at the same time point out that that was incorrect and incorrect assumption. I said to him, well, let's look carefully at the idea of genocide, look at arguments for and against, because this is what philosophers do. And I said, really, you know, the conclusion at the end was, I don't think there's any good arguments for this position, but I think there's good arguments against this position. And then I, I, I finished by saying, and I think it's really racist. And at that point he walked out. So the fact that you had to explain that genocide was a bad idea to a bunch of second-year students 
does rather scare me. Yeah, the future of our nation. And they are seriously entertaining these notions. And we're going to be talking later in the show about this radical notion of power. Um, we're going to be discussing that in detail. We just, for now, just wanted to highlight that this is a prevalent notion. And by prevalent, we don't necessarily mean that most people believe this idea that, that power is necessary for race. But just exactly. like there's a lot of people that believe it, it doesn't necessarily need to be the majority. Mm. It just needs to be a vocal minority in order for it to take hold. And I think you've had similar experiences. Well, <laughs> similar is uh, quite a big word. Not quite. But I think as a woman, uh, one does get away with saying certain things that I think men might find a bit trickier to get away with. So uh, recently, <laughs> a friend and I uh, referred to a particular person as a cunt. Uh, <laughs> Right. And when I so you're on the other side of this discussion. <laughs> right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Look, and this doesn't happen very often. But okay. this particular person right. is, is not a very pleasant person. I mean, that, and that's putting it very euphemistically. Is this person a woman, by the way? No. Oh, interesting. <laughs> okay. Okay. So did you call, a, so did you call a man a cunt? That's right. Oh, okay. Okay. In All right. Case. And when I mentioned this to a friend, he sort of said, you know, obviously men can't quite use that wonderful <laughs> Middle English term quite as liberally <laughs> as women can. So is the idea that if I were to call someone a cunt, a woman, if I were to call a woman a cunt, sure, there would I be something you, wrong with there, that. You would, yeah, you may well end up in, in hot water. And the idea that you could say it is because mm. you're a woman. Right. So in this particular instance, uh, I hold the kind of power necessary to be able to say these kinds of things. Well, well, here's, here's the irony in it is that you hold the power to be able to say that because, mm. precisely because you're part of a group that doesn't hold power. Right. And it was said about a man who supposedly has the power that you lack. Mm. Well, I mean, whether you lack it or have it is really complex now. But, (laughs) but, uh, but the point is, I mean, I, 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 I often use the word faggot. And, uh, and I'm a gay man, so I'm allowed to say that. Yes. But, yeah. And, and why? Because of the power dynamics involved, which we think are really sketchy, right. which are, yeah, really dubious. So, so, we'll, so, so let's, let's get into the meat of this. Exactly. Let's get into the meat of this. Well, the thing is, anecdotally, power is often invoked or power relations are often invoked to explain things. And very interestingly enough, power is rarely, if, ever defined, um, nor is it actually ever argued for. So we are going to be trying to provide an account of power that will work for the identitarians. Okay, so an identitarian is someone who who dives into um, identity politics, I'm yes. guessing, in such a way that they always take the one side of the position. And the right. side of the position that they're taking, so they're trying to reduce oppression and they're trying to uphold social justice. And they do that using various arguments like the power arguments um, involved in racism that, that we're going to be discussing today. We are going to – actually, I'm wondering whether we shouldn't first just discuss this whole notion of racism because some people are going to think – that we're completely crazy to entertain this discussion in the first place, right? Because right. So when they hear yeah. the, the students stand up and say things like, oh, I want a white genocide, they'd mm. say, well, of course that's racist. Yes. Yeah. Right? Like it's just so plainly, yes. obviously racist. Yes. So why – I mean, so the identity politician does seem to have a different account of racism to yes. the traditional account. Exactly. The traditional account goes something like this, that a person is racist against someone else just in case they treat them poorly purely because they belong to a certain um, racial group. 
there's prejudice against others based on an alleged affiliation to a particular racial group. Yes. So, yes, at least because they believe they, they yes. belong to a certain social group. I mean, we're, we're skeptical, skeptical about the notion of race. Exactly. And in our previous episode, we discussed that. Exactly. But for the purposes of this episode, we're giving the, the identitarian the, um, everything they want. We're giving yes. them the notion of race, that race exists. We're giving them the idea that there's racism, and we're giving them the idea that there's power, and that power is necessary for race. So on, on their account on the identity politician's account, which is different from the traditional account, what they want to say is that it's not just the case that you're racist if you treat someone poorly based upon believing that they're part of a race, but you also need to be in a position of power over that person. Right. So the, the racial group to which they belong needs to be a racial group that has less power than the racial group to which you, the racist, belong. And if you insert that, then it makes sense. It makes sense why the guy in my class can stand up, the class leader can stand up and say, I want a white genocide, and it's mm. not racist. Mm. Why? Because he belongs to a racial group, black people, who've been oppressed in the past, and that oppression continues today, or so the argument goes, and so therefore he can't be racist because he's not in a position of power. So it sounds like a big concession to make for those people who immediately would say, my God, that's so clearly racist. But the point is we need to accept some of these premises if we are going to have a discussion, because otherwise there is no common ground and no ground on which we can, you know, argue against the position. So basically, as a meta point, we're going to be looking at the internal coherence of identity politics in so far as it relates to power. Right. So what we want to do is accept these premises and see whether they can work together, specifically what we want want to do is try and investigate an account of power that will work in this argument for the identitarian. And we're going to be looking at three different types of accounts, and we're going to be arguing that none of those types of accounts works for the identitarian. Mm. Even if we accept all the all their premises, we can't find an account of power that gives them the account of racism they want. And we will every now and then be referring to issues of gender as well. And the reason we'll be doing that is because we'll be assuming that the identitarian holds the same kind of account of power for race and for gender. And the thing is, you know, if they, I suppose it is, it is an interesting question whether they may want to construct a different account for gender in, to, in relation to power. But then if they would want to do that, obviously they would have to be a big explanation as to why they should be a different account. Yeah. So we, we're going to assume that the, that discussions about race and dis discussions about gender are interchangeable. Yes. And we're going to assume that they're, they're also going to hold the equivalent view for, for sexism against men. So they're going to say something like, it's impossible for women to be sexist against men. Why? Because of the patriarchy. Right. The patriarchy provides the all men with patri power. Patriarchy. Yeah. The, the patriarchy is everywhere. It permeates every aspect of our lives. It provides women with a constant power disadvantage and men with a constant advantage. And so it's impossible for women to be sexist against men because women are powerless. By comparison. So it's impossible for black people to be racist in respect of whites because of the power dynamics involved there. And analogously, it's impossible for women to be uh, sexist against men because of the powerlessness in relation to the power that men have. Right. So, so now let's dive into our three types of accounts. Right. Okay. So let's start with account number one, which is the resource account. Right. So Jason, how do we normally think about resources? Yeah. So, I mean, normally what we think is that when we have a resource, um, it's transferable. Um, so if I have a watch, I could give it to you. And we think that we can, we can move those resources around. We can sell them. We can, we can give them away. I can like drop my watch in the ocean. And, and interestingly, uh, some, some philosophers who talk about power, the very few who do talk about power, think about power as a resource that can be redistributed in this way. 
Right. But is this now going to work for the identitarian? Because what if we have, for example, a white male who wants to somehow deny his power? Will there be an acceptance of this denial of his power? Or well, how sure, will that work? Definitely not. So, so okay, the identitarian is going to say something like this. They're going to say, oh, you're a white man. Okay, so they're going to look at me, Jason, and they're going to say, you're a white man. And if Jason says, no, no, I, I mean, I am a white man, but I don't have power. And they're going to say, well, no, you're wrong. You do have power. And I say, okay, no, 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 wait. All right, fine. Suppose I have power. I'm now renouncing it. The same way I could take off my watch. Right. I'm wearing a watch right now, Cecilia. Imagine I could, right. I could just take it off, right? I could take it off mm. and there's a bin in the corner there. I could throw it in the bin, right? The identitarian is going to say, no, you can't do that with power. You can't just take the power off and throw it in the bin. But now the problem is that therefore it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like power is a resource in the same way mm. as a watch is a resource. Mm. Right? It doesn't seem like, 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 um, the resource view is the right view to hold of power because power isn't so easily renounced, mm. but resources are. It seems that the kinds of possessions at stake are, are, are a bit different, but it, it's possible if one tries to think about, you know, what an identitarian might say in respect of what you've just said. It's possible to imagine them saying something like, well, you know, yeah, this whole thing about possessions is rather interesting. If you look at personality traits, you know, I possess certain personality traits, right? So they may want to say something like that, but I guess the issue there is that... So you, you're trying to give a Kant example here, right? I'm trying to give a so, Kant so example. So you're trying to give a case on behalf of the identitarian mm. where there is a possession that I have and mm. yet it's not transferable, or put it this way, it, mm. it's, not, it's, not, it's not renounceable. Right. So you're trying to give a case uh, where you tr you're trying to give a case where I've got a possession which mm. I can't renunciate. I can't just give away. Yeah, and okay. that I mean I think you know people do think that they possess certain character traits, but then it's possible that that reply or response really relies on this notion of possession as opposed to one of resources because we don't think about personality traits as things that you can trade or get rid of either. They're not make a great sci-fi can... novel. <laughs> Well, this is possibly another idea for one of your next novels. <laughs> it would make a great story. Yeah, think about this. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, we'd need quite a lot of science fiction in order to create a world where we could move our personality traits around in the way right. that um, we can move resources around. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. I mean, that, that's the whole idea, idea behind the view, mm, right? The whole exactly. idea is that we we must. The reason the reason why they think power is a resource is mm. they want to transfer that exactly. away from groups which they feel have too much power and too groups that, that they feel have too little power. But it doesn't seem like this is the right kind of view for that. It doesn't seem like it's going to work for the identitarian. So in light of that, Iris Marion Young, who is a rather famous identitarian, comes up with this idea that the resource view is not going to work because it just, you know, doesn't capture the kind of power that identitarians, you know, are talking about. So she thinks that power is is relational. And she puts forward this idea that power is a relation between people as opposed to uh, a resource and certainly has advantages over the resource account. So let's imagine Jason, the white male, who wants to give up his power and that he has in virtue of And his, I declare, um, I renounce my power. <laughs> right. And then, well, Iris Marion Young can now come and say, okay, well, you know, 
you can't because it's a relational thing. Okay. Yes. So you have it whether or not you want to have it because, you know, you simply stand in a particular relation to another person and it's, it's not like a resource. You can't just renounce those kinds of right. So, um, so the, relationships. Right. So the kind of case she has in mind is like, okay, I've got all these resources as a white male. I, I grew up in a wealthier family than some black people did. I grew up in a location that was more amenable to opportunities than mm. some black people did. I've got intergenerational wealth, which some black people don't have. And so that gives me power over black people. And right. even if you didn't have intergenerational wealth, the idea is that your racial groups privileges, you know, extend yes. to you. And therefore you yes. have just because power. I'm a white man, I've got these things, right. which, which black women wouldn't have. And the idea is that whether or not I renounce it verbally and say, I renounce this, this privilege, I still have it because I've still got this power over them. And, and that would explain why I can't renounce it. But on the resource view, we can't explain that. So, so Iris Marion Young is suggesting a relational view as opposed to a state view. The idea that my power is not a state of affairs. Instead, it's a relation between me and another person. So then let's talk about this second kind of account of power, which is the power over account. And basically, in a nutshell, it simply assumes that there is a relationship of domination and subordination. And when we talk about the power over account, it looks like we can divide it up into three sort of sub accounts. And let's start with the radical account. Yeah, which is my student in the classroom, right? Exactly. He's holding a radical account. It's pretty radical. It would yeah. certainly have to be defined as a radical notion. But I think it's more interesting first to discuss it in terms of gender. So so how does the radical account play out in terms of the relationship between men and women, right. according to radical feminists? Catherine McKinnon, who is uh, another very famous identitarian, argues that the male female relationship is one of mastery and slavery. So the male is the master over the female who is the slave. And and on her view, that permeates all relationships between men and women yep. and all types of acts, including sex, yep. heterosexual sex. Well, heterosexual sex is particularly interesting, right? Because that, in fact, is uh, the quintessential expression of this power dynamic. I know some gay men who'd agree with this. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm afraid I don't. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, on that view, is Am I right that the only like good sex is homosexual sex? Is that, is that... <laughs> well, it's one between equals, right? So that's right. that that's acceptable. Ah, but it's because... sounding good. I... <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's pretty crazy. It's kind of nuts, right? Yeah. Because then you want to say that a heterosexual sex is always domination and subordination, and is thus never really consensual because there's this power dynamic which takes away a woman's ability to consent or to refuse sex. Yeah, so the question is, could the slave consent to sex with the master? And right. they're saying, well, no. They're saying no. You know, mm -hmm. and, and so therefore, you know, but that's the situation because the patriarchy is all-consuming and ubiquitous. That's the situation that all women are in every time men mm -hmm. ask for sex. And frankly, that just sounds completely unpalatable. It just does not sound like a bullet that we are going to be prepared to bite. I think too many people in the world would just agree that it's just an absurd yeah. uh, conclusion at which to arrive. I mean, it's all sex is rape. That's right. Yeah. As harsh as that sounds. And so, I mean, for that reason alone, this view seems to be a bit kooky. Yeah. At least all heterosexual sex. Yes. Would you be okay with lesbian sex? Probably right, because in relation to gender, there is no master and slave. 
There's just two equals. Which points to really what they're wanting, right? What radical feminists and radical racial theorists are wanting is yes. a separation. Exactly. They're wanting a separation of, in the case of race, of white and black people, in the case of, of gender between men and women. So that is a rather crazy point because if the conclusion is to separate genders or separate races, that should obviously ring very many bells, especially to South Africans, because that is what apartheid did. Right. So the, it seems like the radical left has gone all the way to the radical right. Yes. They yeah. always meet somehow. Yeah. 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 Go, well, full, full 360 and meet. It's, it's that horseshoe thing. Well, well, here's, okay. So, so here's the problem as well is that if you can't separate, right? So if, if, you know, pragmatically, yes. if you can't go apartheid and you can't separate men and women for yes. pragmatic reasons, either because they don't want to, gasp, you know, um, <laughs> or, or because it's just not pragmatic, then you start to produce these very radical accounts like the genocide account. Like the kid in your class. Yeah. But the thing is, you know, people are going to probably say to us, well, that is a rather uncharitable view. And frankly, how many people really hold this view? And it's just so despicable. You know, it's it's not something that can, you know, that is part of yeah, the Yeah, and it's, it's a straw man of the position. It's a total straw man. Yeah. This is ridiculous. Yeah. The point is, though, that there are people who hold these views. And so, you know, we need to engage with that fact. And there was in 2016, a guy called Velapi Kamalo, who was at the time employed by the Gauteng Department of Sport, Culture and Recreation. And on his Facebook page, he, as a solution to the problem of white power, had the following to say. He wrote, I want to cleanse this country of all white people. We must act as Hitler did to the Jews. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I think he said more than that. He did. He went on to say that white people in South Africa deserve to be hacked and killed like Jews. No, you must be bushed. I think he meant burnt. Alive and skinned, and your offsprings used as garden fertilizer. That awkward moment when your auto text changes burn to bushed. <laughs> that is. So we're uh, going to move on from the radical account. It's super unpalatable. It is super unpalatable. I mean, yeah. it it's, uh, it sort of leaves a terrible taste in one's mouth. Yeah. Right. Let's move on to the Marxist account because that seems to be a slightly more nuanced account than the radical account, and basically. A streamlined sort of Marxist account would hold that the rich class or the bourgeoisie um, has power in so far that uh, as it exploits the labor of the poor or the proletariat. So if we just apply the, this very streamlined Marxist account of power to race and gender, it simply means that, you know, whites exploit blacks and men exploit women. Right. But the problem with this is So in that, this case whites would be the, the bourgeois right. and men would be the bourgeois and black people and women would be the proletariat. Exactly. Right. So we can just swap these things out. But the problem is this account doesn't really seem to capture reality because there do seem to be quite a few people who have done well economically, socially, politically, who are not white or who are not men. So I mean, how would the identitarian respond respond well, to that? I guess they'd say that it's due to other factors, and um, it's despite their race, not because of their race, that they that they that that black people are able to succeed, or it's despite mm. their gender, not because of their gender, mm. that women are able to succeed. So there mm. must be some other factors involved that are allowing them to succeed, but those are individual factors specific mm. to that person, mm. and so you know there'll be rare exceptions. 
Right. Yeah. So that's that's the thing. They're going to say, well, you know, you're pointing to the exceptions to the rule. Overall, black people are oppressed in relation to whites, and overall, women are certainly oppressed in relation to men. So they're just going to say, that's just, it's not capturing overall what's going on. Yeah. So, I mean, the question we have to ask is, why think that overall black people are oppressed? Why think that overall women are oppressed? And there's some other questions to ask as well. We have to ask, oh, so if there are other factors involved mm. that explain the success of black people or women, why aren't there also other factors involved in explaining the poverty? Why, why aren't there other factors involved in explaining the, the lack of success if there are other factors involved in explaining success. In other exactly. words, it seems like an oversimplistic view. It's not mm. taking into account multiple variables. Yes. It's singling in on sing the single variable of them being black or a woman explaining their lack of power in the world mm. rather than looking at multiple variables. But they're allowing for multiple variables when explaining their lack of uh, sorry, their success. They're ex they're allowing for multiple variables when explaining their success, but not their lack of success, which seems inconsistent. So there seem to be two things going on here. Firstly, there's the fallacy of the single cause, because they're just you know relying on this one thing. But then, in addition to that, actually, there's there's more, and and that is that this you know explanatory power of all of various factors goes one way, but doesn't seem to go the other, and that's right. just very strange. Right. And in actual fact, if we're looking at all these other factors to explain what's going on, well, then neither race nor gender are actually doing any work. Well, they might be doing some work, but they're certainly not doing all the work. Exactly. And if we have to refer to more. Yes, but the Marxist wants them to do all, all the, the work. work. Right. right. So it seems like an overly simplistic account. It seems incomplete. It's not giving us all the factors that are involved. But uh, even if we, you know, did consider all those factors, is there a way in which race and gender might actually be, you know, working the other way for them? Right. I mean, I, we can think of cases, for example, preferential hiring in South Africa. Affirmative action policies dictate that women and black people have prefer, they, they are preferred in a position. So if they apply for a job, they get chosen first over an equivalently talented white applicant. That seems like an institutionalized system where their race and their gender is working for them. So not against, as is claimed. Yeah, the, the Marxists just can't account for that. Some of these points actually bring us to our third power over account, which is intersectionalism. And intersectionalism really takes very seriously the charge that these traditional power accounts are too simplistic. They're too one-dimensional, and they don't capture this multi-dimensional way in which certain people are oppressed and conversely privileged. So Kimberly Crenshaw is the main theorist in that particular field. And what she says is women of color, for example, have a very particular experience of oppression as opposed to, you know, black men or white women. And they find themselves on a particular point in this grid of oppression, which then I think, you know, develops out of this intersectionalism right. view. So they're oppressed because they're women and they're oppressed because, because they're, they're black. black. And the intersection of those creates a totally different experience exactly. to if they were just women or just black. What might be an issue with this account? Okay. So, so one problem is that it kind of de demotes or gives less importance to certain social causes that identity politicians want to uphold. One of which is that white privilege is a problem. 
on the view that white privilege is a problem, you're taking one type of oppression and saying that one's an issue. But the intersectionalist is saying, well, hold, hold, hold on, hold on. There's not really white privilege per se. There's just all these individuals who have these intersections of all these different forces. So, so if you're black, you're not a victim of white privilege. You're a victim of, well, you're black plus a woman plus gay plus disabled or whatever it is, right? So, mm-hmm. so you can't talk about a single, a single you can't talk about white privilege because it's overly simplistic on the intersectionalism view. You need to always account for all these different factors. And when you're just talking about white privilege, you're not doing so. You're not capturing a particular lived experience by using such a blunt mechanism. Yes, exactly. So the intersectionalist is saying that the idea of white privilege doesn't capture any person's lived experience. It's like saying the average Joe. Well, mm. the average Joe doesn't exist. No. What is it? 2.4 children. Like there aren't, there's no 2.4 children. people in the world who have yeah. 2.4 children. Exactly. That's an average. And, right. and the intersectionist is saying, well, saying that there's white privilege is like saying that, you know, the average person is 2.4 children. There's no, there's no, there's no such thing as white privilege per se. What there is, mm. is the intersection of mm. all these different factors, one of which would be whiteness. Mm. Then again, there may be the response that, well, certainly in respect of race, you know, there is privilege and oppression. Yeah. So, so they'd want to say, well, you know, yeah, there's all these different factors, but we can at least still single out whiteness. Yes. Um, but the problem with that is that you, you can no longer reference simplistic social phenomena like white privilege. Because white privilege assumes that white people have a certain unearned advantage purely because they're white. But on the intersectionalist view, you can never say that a person has any given advantage because of only one factor or one feature that they they possess. Why? Because the intersectionalist says we all have a lived experience that's at the intersection of lots of different factors or features. Right. There's a cluster that you can't even you can't separate out that cluster. Yes, it's impossible. It's like the 2.4 children. Right. There are no 2.4 children. There's only people with two or three or one or five or 12 or however many, but there's no one with 2.4. There's no yeah. one who experiences pure white privilege. So, for example, the intersectionist is going to have a look at each white person and say, well, what are the other features? Are they a woman? Because if they are, then they're not just privileged because they're white. They have this. They're this oppressed in-, in relation to their gender. Yes. So, so are they privileged overall? Well, there's no answer to that question. Another question will be like, are they disabled? Are they Jewish? Do right. they suffer anti-Semitic oppression? Are they gay? You know, there's all these other factors that get thrown in. And so you can't have this simple notion of white privilege, which the identity politician wants. They want to say that there are these oppressive forces like whiteness and white privilege and that they exist. But this account of power is not going to allow them to do that. No. So this is not going to work for identitarians. And this actually then brings us to our final account of power. But before we discuss the final account of power, which is an empowerment account, let's just sum up. Okay, okay. So, so, so far we've looked at two types of accounts. So we've looked at a resource account of power, the idea that power is something you own and can be redistributed. And we said that doesn't really work because you can't renounce power the same way you can renounce other resources. Not according to the identitarian. No, yeah. so it's not going to work. For it's not going to work for them. And then we started looking at power 
over. And we looked at three different accounts under power over. Right. So um, we first looked at the radical account, right. which was super unpalatable. It resulted in the idea that all sex between men and women is rape. And it resulted in the idea that um, the only way to resolve um, issues between groups that have disparate power is to separate them entirely, which results in apartheid-type situations. And if that doesn't work, we're going full genocide, yeah. which is crazy. I mean, I'm prepared to say that. I'm prepared to say that's crazy. That's yeah. batshit oh, crazy. That is batshit yeah. crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's that that's racist and it's crazy. Agreed. Yeah. And I I, I, I think anyone who believes that we can't reason with them. No. So, you know, if your intuitions are not bulking at the idea of genocide as being like problematic, then you're probably listening to the wrong podcast. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. So we're going to assume that radicalism is not going to work for, for the identity politician if they're going to provide a plausible view. And then we moved on to Marxism, at least a Marxist application and an application of Marxism as an account of power, the idea that white people um, are the bourgeois and black people are the proletariat. And, and we said that's not really going to work either because of exceptions. Or not just exceptions, but people who arise to power or success purely due to other factors, due to other factors or due to their race. race uh, being part of an oppressed race can give them power. And, you know, your example right at the beginning of this podcast of being able to say things like cunt – Right. Uh, is an example of that. It seems like you're given power purely because you don't have power, right. which is a contradiction. It's right? a contradiction. Yeah. Okay. And then we looked at a third account, which is the intersectionism account, but we said that that's going to whittle down the identity politicians' view too much. They're not going to be able to use other notions that they want to use, like white privilege. So this leads us to last account of power, which we're going to examine, and that is one of empowerment. And ultimately, this account of power relates to a person's level of autonomy. So if you're empowered to be able to do what you want to do in your life, you have power. So this is power to instead of power over. Exactly. It's Quite no, a positive conception of yeah, power. Yeah. So you, you, you're not empowered if you have the ability to make someone else do something, which is the power over account. Okay. This is about, it's not about domination. No. You have power if you can fulfill your own goals and desires. Right. You have power to do what you want to do. That's what gives you power. So if you can fulfill your goals in life, then it pretty much means that you have power. You are empowered. So this exactly. third account is a more it's, it, it, it doesn't cite um, historical factors as much. It's, it's more about what mm. you yourself can do. And there's no relational aspect to it. It's just about your level of autonomy in the world. Right. Okay, Jason. So what could be the problems with this empowerment account? So the identity politician is trying to give an account of power and the identity politician is saying that empowerment is necessary and sufficient for power. So that means whenever you have empowerment, you've got power, and you've never got power without empowerment. empowerment. Right. The problem is both of those are false. We can find counterexamples to those. We can find cases where empowerment is not sufficient for power and empowerment is not necessary for power. So let's look at those. Let's. So firstly, for sufficiency. We can imagine a case where a person is empowered and yet the identity politician wants to say they have no power. Okay. So I can think of two cases. So the one is members of cabinet. So 73 out of 76 members of cabinet in South Africa are persons of color, which is disproportionately high compared with the population of South Africa, the demographic population of South Africa. Another example is that 15 out of 16 superior heads of court are persons of color versus 
only one out of 16 are white. So in those two cases, you've got persons of color who are empowered in those incredibly important positions in South African society and all the opportunities and resources that come with them. And yet the identity politician still wants to say that black people as a whole are not in a position of power. So you've got empowerment without power. Empowerment is not sufficient for power. And these are institutions of, as you've already said, enormous importance. They define how South African society functions and works and what policies get made. And yeah, so, so if, if that's not, I mean, if, if, if the identity politician wants to say that even with 73 out of 76 members of cabinet and even with 15 out of 16 superior heads of court being persons of color, black people still aren't in a position of power, well, then it means that empowerment is not sufficient for power on their view. Right. Now let's look at the necessary component. Of, yeah. So of the claim thing. that empowerment is necessary for, for power. Exactly. Yeah. So the question there is, can we imagine a case in which there is a person who has power but does not have empowerment? Right. So that will just show us that empowerment is not necessary for power. Yeah. A case where, where the identity politician will agree to this, right? right They'll right. agree that there's a person who is in a position of power but is not empowered. I guess a recent example of this kind of thing would be Louis C.K., right? Because here you have this white male who is in a very powerful economic position, but isn't quite empowered to do what he wants. So the main case revolved around him asking women whether he could uh, joke off in front of them. And the thing is, he asked. And if they said no, he didn't do so. Right. And he yet asked. these these sexual advances were seen not as just normal sexual interaction between men and women, or a man and a woman rather, but as sexual harassment. Yes. And the reason is why? Because, because he's powerful. Yeah. And he's, and he's yeah. in a position, you know, that is that is so powerful in respect of the other person that this other person can't possibly consent to or in fact, refuse his sexual advances. Yeah, his power, I think the, the claim goes, his power lay in the fact that he was a very influential and successful comedian. And so mm. if there was anyone in the industry and mm. he asked them to have sex and they said no, they were worried that, that they wouldn't get a job after that. Mm. And so the idea is that I'm assuming our listeners are familiar with, with the recent Me Too campaign. So, so what happened was people came forward, women who he had approached for sex or for Jerk off sessions, um, came forward and said, he asked us this and that was harassment because right. we were not in a position to really refuse because we were in a position of powerlessness relative to him. And one can imagine instances in, you know, in which there is an abuse of power. And I think the Harvey Weinstein cases is, is you know, is quite sure. a clear one because there were clear instances where sure. he went on a smear campaign regarding particular actresses who turned him down. But there's no indication but, that Louis C.K. did right, that exactly, in any way. Exactly. Um, but, but okay. So, 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 so the reason why we want to say that he actually lacks power in this mm. situation is because Firstly, I mean, he, he lost his career because of this, right? He right. lost his job because of these sexual advances. Right. But, but really what, what the identity politician is trying to say, what feminists are saying in the situation is that he can never ask someone in the industry, in the industry. for sex. He can never even ask without it constituting sexual harassment. If you can never hit on someone who's in your industry just because you may earn slightly more than them or, you know, that kind of thing, you yeah. hold an influential position in the industry. But it goes further, see? It, it goes further. 
here's why, is because according to the identity politician, the patriarchy is ubiquitous. Whether or not a man earns more than a woman, he's still a man, a, a man, which means he's in a position of power. Correct. So if any man asks any woman for sex, that's harassment because he's in a superior. <laughs> Cecilia's killing herself laughing right now. <laughs> so if any man asks any woman for sex, that's considered harassment. Why? Because if you combine the premises that if a person of power asks for sex or a jerk off session <laughs> with someone in, in a position of less power and all men are in a position of power, well then, you've got the situation of all sex is sexual harassment. Are we being uncharitable here? Because that- I, I just don't know. See, I mean, like, I mean, these are all these claims are claims that I've heard identity politicians make. So the question is like, will, are there different types of identity politicians who make some of these claims and not other claims? I, I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, it's it's really hard, and this is this is the problem with discussing this entire area. I'll tell you what I think we may be a little bit uncharitable in our discussion right now, and that's simply because we are discussing this example under the empowerment view, right? Okay. And the empowerment view holds that you know you only have power in so far as you can make things happen in your life, and in so far as you can exercise your autonomy. So this is not the relational kind of. Okay. No. Group. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. But 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 still. What what we want to say is that someone like Louis C.K., according to the identity politician, has power because they're a white man, and yet it seems like he is not empowered. Yes. Because he has why? Because holds. when he asks for things, he gets into trouble. Yes. Right? Yes. He asks for sex and he loses his career. But this is on the empowerment view only because he really is in a higher societal position of power that, you know, comes with I don't know, all sorts of influence and that kind of but thing. But think about the weirdness in that. Yes. You're saying that he's in a position of power, or the identity politician, you're saying on behalf, on behalf of, the of the identity politician. That he's in a position of power. Right. And yet he can't do something like ask for sex. Exactly. So this is why the necessary condition doesn't, uh, isn't fulfilled here either. Correct. And I mean, we can. doesn't seem necessary for power. Exactly. Yeah. And just. On a side note, we can also easily imagine a woman who might be in exactly the same... Like, let's just do a role reversal, right? Yeah, a powerful female comedian. Right. Yeah, we can imagine this very powerful woman making sexual advances on male colleagues who might not be in exactly the same league. So, so like Meryl the Beyonce Street. of Street. Yeah, Beyonce. comedy. Yeah, asks asks one of her underlings yes. to go and give her a bit of pre-show pre prep. Right. Yeah. <laughs> It's unlikely that there would have been such a such outrage around yeah. something like that. Yeah. Would it be considered rape? Would it be considered sexual harassment? Would she have lost her job? Mm. Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. So it's just because she's a female. Yeah. So it seems weird to say that women have less power or less they're less empowered, empowered. in these situations. Correct. Yeah. Empowerment is neither necessary nor sufficient for power, at least power as the identity politician wants to conceive it. So, Jason, can you think of another example, perhaps? Yeah, so I can think of another case where you've got a group of people who are not empowered, who are disempowered, and yet, according to the, polit the identity politician, do have power. And that's white men when they're applying for jobs in South Africa. So affirmative action hiring policies dictate that white men should not be preferred for jobs. They should be disfavored when they're applying for jobs, which seems like a significant disempowerment compared with people who are preferred for jobs. In other words, black people and women. And, and, 
And yet the identity politician wants to say that white men are in a position of power. That suggests that empowerment is not necessary for for power. So the response I think one would encounter in that instance would be black people on the whole, though, are not empowered. Okay, So that under certain conditions... Some black people might be empowered, but on yeah, so the whole, members of cabinet and, yeah, exactly. and superior heads of court, they they function as exceptions, and that's why it's illegitimate to point to them because we're not disproving the general rule or, or the the general state of affairs. We, you know, I think the identitarian will simply say that overall, black people are disempowered, and overall, white people are are empowered. Right. So we shouldn't be citing these exceptional cases. Right. But now the question is why. Why do we think that overall black people are disempowered and overall white people are empowered? Why do we think this? Mm. And the answer, which one of the per, one of the people we 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 talked to mm. um, at Fitz, um, Tifatswa, um, what she said is the reason is the history of oppression. So under apartheid, there was horrific discrimination against black people, and because of that, that legacy persists today. Right. And um, there was codified, institutionalized racism uh, with horrific consequences for, for black people. And, and, and we totally accept that. You know, we acknowledge this. Uh, we have no issue with, with pointing that out. Absolutely. And it's a very particular way of subordinating a group of people is, yeah. is through the law, is institutionalized. It is, you know, written into policy. It is a clear way that a particular group, um, a particular group that is deemed a particular race is then completely disenfranchised and disempowered. Yeah. And, and that seems like a very plausible situation in which there is a difference in power. Absolutely. But there, there is a problem with the empowerment theorist giving this response. And the problem is that it's referencing oppression. And oppression would, wouldn't fall under the empowerment schema of looking at power. It would fall under the power over account. Right, because it's not about uh, one's autonomy. It's not, it's not this non-relational question about an individual's autonomy to fulfill you know, their, their life's goals. It's really a, a relational thing. Yes. So, so, so if you're referencing apartheid oppression, what you're doing is you're, on behalf of the empowerment theorist, you're collapsing the empowerment account Mm. into a power over account, into that second type of account we looked at. So the empowerment account doesn't seem to be doing any work anymore. You've now collapsed into a power over account and we've already given objections to three different subtypes of power over accounts. So, there is one more uh, possibility that the empowerment theorist, uh, one more possible response they could give. They could say the history in South Africa is such that black people today have fewer resources or don't have the resources and opportunities that they need in order to succeed in life. And that's as a legacy of apartheid, exactly. but without mentioning the oppression involved. Okay. Let's think about, for example, a couple who – lived in a city and then was forcibly removed and made to live in a Bantustan in a homeland far away from economic opportunities. This is a black couple. Right. Far away from, you know, the best kinds of educational opportunities for their children. children And far, far from high paying jobs. Exactly. And so we can just imagine 
that these children, had apartheid not occurred, would have had a very different childhood, would have had very different opportunities. And and yet, you know, these children are born after the dawn of democracy. Mm. But what seems to be happening is that the effects of apartheid are lingering and having an effect on on their lives. So, so, so really what that response does is it says, okay, the reason black people are disempowered today is not because of a history of oppression, because oppression will fall under the power over account. It's because of a history of different resources being allocated to white and black people, different resources and opportunities, and that those differences in resources persist today through intergenerational inheritance. Right. So this is one way that the empowerment theorist can still save it. Yes, because they're not referencing oppression anymore. They're just referencing a, a sustained legacy of a difference in resources and opportunities being accrued to white and black people. So depending on you know where you are and parents' backgrounds and that kind of thing, you may well have very different opportunities and access to healthy early childhood development, quality education, familial stability, safety, Security, nutrition, and job I think opportunities. It's very hard to argue with that. Mm. So, you know, um, statisticians will point out the differences in prevalence of all those different factors in the black community and the white community. And we're not going to argue with those empirical claims. So right. that's true. But now what's very important to notice is that if, if the empowerment theorist starts to point out all those different factors, healthcare, education, intergenerational wealth, and that's what's disempowering or empowering someone, it doesn't seem like race is playing any role there. Exactly. It's not race that's doing the work. Yes, because some black people are going to have those things. And some white people are not going to have those things. Some white children are not going to go to good schools. Mm. And some white children are not going to have access to intergenerational wealth. And some black children are going to go to good schools and are going to have access to intergenerational wealth. So what's the empowerment theorist going to say in those cases? They're going to, the empowerment theorist must say that in those cases, the black person who has those resources is has power. power. Yeah, exactly. Right? Is empowered and has power. Yes. And the white person who doesn't have those resources and opportunities is disempowered. So you can't, on this view, make a blanket statement that all white people are powerful and no black people have power. And so therefore no black people can be racist. So the empowerment view is not going to support the original argument that the identity politician wants to put forward, which is that power allows or the lack of power allows black people the ability to say apparently racist things without being racist. Why? Because you can't make these blanket statements about all black people lacking power. So now we've run through three different accounts of power, and none of them seem to give what the identitarian actually needs from them. Yeah, so the resource view is no good, the power overview is no good, and the empowerment account, although it seems to me the most plausible account of what power is, is mm. not going to function in the way the, politi the, the identity politician wants it to function. It's not going to allow for arguments like the argument that no black people can be racist. So given that we can't find a good account of power that the identity politician can use to support their views. Let's just return to our Vilapi Kumalo, our beloved Vilapi Kumalo, who said the following. Oh, it's very difficult to read this stuff aloud. White people in South Africa deserve to be hacked and killed. He said and, not and. And killed like Jews. 
No, you must be bushed, burned alive and skinned, and your offspring used as garden fertilizer. I think that anyone listening to that with a modicum of of intuition, which isn't rooted in tons of theoretical discussion, our pre-philosophical, pre-political intuitions, although that's racist, and yet it was spoken by a black man, who interestingly was in a position of power. He was an employee of the government. Right. And he had all the power that came with that. It seems to me like that's racist. Agreed. Many thanks to our sanity checker, Mark Oppenheimer, for his invaluable input around the content of this episode. And thanks to Victor, Molly, Sean, Gugu, Tefatswa, and Ketanda for speaking to us on campus. Thank you for listening to our discussion on power. Join us next time to discuss what is it like to be black? Is there a prototypical black experience? If so, what is it? We'll be chatting about that in detail next time. This is CliffCentral.com.